Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Despite concerns, Binance continues to dominate as it posts its fourth consecutive month of increased market share. Plus, ARK Investments doubles down on crypto, buying up more stock from Coinbase and Robinhood. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Michael Del Castillo, Senior Editor from Forbes. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ash. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to be back with you. Lots to discuss. But first, let's take a look at the latest price analysis. Bitcoin fell to a three-week low this morning, now trading at around $22,000, down about 4% over the last seven days. This comes after U.S. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell's testimony to Congress yesterday, which has motivated traders to price in higher terminal rates. Uh, at the short end of the curve, uh, U.S. two-year Treasury yields are now trading just above 5%. Looks like 5.049 on my screen right now. Uh, indeed, ETH is feeling the pain as well. Right now, ETH is trading around 1,500 US dollars, which means it's down around 3% over the last seven days. As Coindesk reports, Powell's comments seem to have had quite an impact on price action. Quote, traders now expect continued tightening over the coming months with the central bank raising rates by at least 100 points before calling it a day. Uh, that according to analysis from Coindesk. We're going to bring in Michael to dig into all of this. But first, viewers, please join us in the conversation. Put down your questions questions in the chat wherever you're watching. We'll ask the best ones on the air later in the show. Remember, Real Vision members take priority, but the good news is Real Vision crypto membership is free. With that said, let's bring in our guest. Michael, it's great to have you back on the show. Great to be here with you again. We should say, in full disclosure, we know each other. We've worked together in a past life. Yeah, it's actually really fun to see you in this capacity because 90% of all my memories uh, of you are the left or the right side of your head. <laughs> uh, because we literally worked shoulder to shoulder uh, in an office um, where the floor was slanted. So our chairs kept rolling to one side of the room. <laughs> yeah, we, we worked together at like a WeWork in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, this was uh, during the days where you and I were both at Coindesk. I believe we were two of the three journalism leads at the time. You ran Enterprise Blockchain. I was running Markets Reporting. Uh, yep. A hell of a lot of fun. Yep. Yeah, uh, it was interesting to see that Enterprise Blockchain beat evolve into institutional crypto as big companies started to get more and more comfortable with using uh, the scary public blockchains. Um, but it was it was fun to work with you through the whole evolution of that story. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was secretly a little jealous of you, Michael, because you got to talk to all the banks, which was super fun, which I thought was majorly cool at the time. I, I'll never forget sort of discovering Bitcoin uh, back in uh, October 2011 fresh out of grad school with uh, the words of my professors uh, rummaging around in my head, follow the money, follow the money, follow the money. And, um, you know, I was never a markets guy, so I wasn't talking about markets going up or down and people making money off of smart trades. I was really interested in how these big companies, the existing uh, potentially disrupted institutions, uh, might get involved or combated. And it's proved to be a absolutely fascinating story to tell for 10 years plus. 
Yeah, and you've been brilliant at setting up that narrative and telling that story. So it's really a pleasure to have you with us today. So much to talk about here. Obviously, a lot of news flow. Uh, given Powell's testimony yesterday and the price action today, what are you making of what's happening in crypto markets more generally right now? What's your reaction? I, I happy to see sort of like actually a bit of stability at the top, to be honest. Like if you take a look at the the highs and the lows over the last two to three weeks, uh, over the course of the last you know six months or so, there's actually a, a degree of stability. So I'm not really uh, chicken little panicking over the sky falling here. Uh, we do talk, I mean, the, the price movements of pennies and dollars on a day still mean something. But over the long haul, I actually see a lot of stability. And I think that sort of reflects that the industry has moved past uh, a time where a single news event is having catastrophic impact on prices. Uh, the reactions are still there, but much more mature. You know, it's very interesting. You talk about this sort of stabilization that we've seen in the market. We should point out, obviously, we're down about two thirds, uh, maybe a little bit more from the high in Bitcoin, some similar changes uh, in ETH. Uh, when you talk about this sort of environment of stability, obviously, uh, for people who are trading it day to day, the news flow uh, obviously has a significant impact on the short term price movements. But what do you see that brings in this this general era, as you see it, uh, of a stabilizing market? Yeah, well, when when you and I were working together, uh, if we got a big scoop and we ran a story, we could see the story move markets by percentage points and sometimes much more than that. Um, I remember when uh, one of my favorite stories is when IBM first partnered with Stellar to do yeah. the experiments with central bank digital currencies. Now, I had that story for days, maybe even a week or two before it went live so that I could do the reporting. Um, and when it went live, we saw a couple billion dollars of market value added to the Stellar blockchain overnight. And we're just not seeing that anymore. Like a single story um, isn't, isn't creating that kind of, and that was, you got to keep in mind, that was a couple billion dollars of a market cap that was only a couple billion dollars. Right. So it's all very, very relative. You know, if, if the chairman of the biggest central bank in the world makes comments that the industry interprets as bad, uh, the price is going to go down. But compared to what used to happen on a relatively tiny news story, it's it's nothing. And I actually, you know, I still respect the the analysts and the people that are making fortunes out there by trying to anticipate micro movements in in, in, in price activity. There's still a great business opportunity there. But if you if you take a step back and take a look at the resilience of the market overall. Where we are today compared to where we were just a couple of years ago, it's not even it's not even comparable. You know, Michael, this is such a great point. And by the way, we're not talking about the dark ages. This was 2017, uh, so about six years ago. Uh, so a sign of stability definitely is that when you and I can't move the market like Jay Powell. <laughs> and to be fair, people give me grief because I, I, I don't invest. Um, and I, I don't invest in crypto, I should say. Right. I made a promise to my readers and... 2015 that I wouldn't invest in crypto until a couple uh, theoretical milestones had been achieved or until I wasn't writing about crypto anymore. And that was because I knew that these stories could move prices. Right. And I wanted my readers to be uh, confident 
that I was making my story selections based on what I thought was actually the most interesting news of day, the most meaningful opportunities, the most right. innovative leaders without worrying about whether or not it's going to impact my bottom line. And uh, I, I may be starting to age out of that promise, honestly, because in a time where stories have so little relative impact to markets, maybe it's finally coming to be safe for me to make that first purchase. <laughs> you know, it's really funny that you should say that because I've, I've struggled with this myself. And the challenge with crypto is unlike investing, uh, for example, in stock, uh, if you're a reporter at CNBC or at the Wall Street Journal, you don't invest in stock, but stock doesn't really have anything uh, other than capital appreciation. The problem with crypto is that there's functionality in it and there's the experience of actually getting to participate and to watch things on the block explorer. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I've invested, I own crypto, but I don't think I own a single position that's more than like a month's rent, right? That's like, yeah, you know, like you it doesn't really matter to me. I, use it. Um, that's a great point. You have to use it. Um, I also own crypto. Um, I've acquired it along the way. In fact, uh, going way back, I could even talk about when a new wallet used to open, it came with Bitcoin in it <laughs> because that was how they got you to use it. And it was actually also a great way for reporters to get early experience actually moving an asset from point A to point B. Uh, when um, ATMs were a thing, you know, or, well, when they yeah. were becoming a thing, I should say. Yeah, you go out, you put $3 in a Bitcoin ATM at the local mall and you make a withdrawal, you see what it's like, you move it from wallet A to wallet B, you move it from exchange to exchange, you, you, you uh, move it to a, a hardware device, you, you play around with it. Um, you've got to have the hands-on experience, but uh, you don't actually need to be a billionaire to know how it works. Yeah, very well said. Michael, talking about experiences uh, that you have firsthand, uh, let's talk about our top story today. Uh, despite massive regulatory concerns, Binance has continued its growth as their market share has increased for a fourth consecutive month. According to Coindesk and data analytics from Crypto Compares, Binance's market share just increased from 59 0.4% in January to 61.8% in February. Indeed, Binance also saw a 13.7% increase in its spot volumes to $504 billion, an all-time market share high for the exchange. Uh, on the other hand, Coinbase, second to Binance in volume, is down 29% from the previous month, and Kraken, third to Binance in volume, was down 11%. This, of course, comes as regulators in the U.S. and abroad have increased their scrutiny of Binance post FTX collapse. Indeed, as Coindesk reports, the SEC believes that Binance US, uh, that's the Binance corporate entity that operates here in the United States, may be operating as an unregistered securities exchange here in the US, as we discussed yesterday on the show, of course. Of course, Binance US has objected to this assertion, uh, but that regulatory concern doesn't seem to be stopping traders at the moment. As Crypto Compare research analyst Jacob Joseph said to Coindesk, quote, Despite the recent criticism the exchange has received, market participants continue to take shelter on Binance under the premise that the largest exchange is seen as one of the safer trading venues. Michael, so much to say here. Uh, boy, where do we even begin your relationship with Binance? They sued you, I believe. Uh, so, Michael, I don't know how much you can talk about this. I know these ongoing legal situations are always tricky. I'm just going to turn it over to you. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll start with the sort of news of day a bit. Um, I, I do think it's important that we don't necessarily equate um, increased market share with new users. Uh, those are not necessarily one and the same, especially in a macro market where competitors are going bankrupt left and right, 
where competitors right. are being put out of business, where competitors are, you know, sending emails to their clientele, telling them they've got a week to withdraw their funds because they're not going to be doing business anymore. Um, so, like, we don't necessarily know where those people are going. Some of them may be going to competitors. Uh, some of them may be getting out of the industry altogether. Uh, the, the point is that increased market share does not necessarily mean need to mean new users. And I'm a little bit suspicious of some of the wording in that report. Um, I, I think it's worth taking a closer look at whether or not we can actually see reliable data that shows that this increased market share is coming directly from new users. And perhaps more importantly, for an exchange that has proved um, willing to play in the gray from a regulatory compliant, know your customer perspective, whether or not we can actually trust the data that we're seeing that shows there may or may not be an increase in new users. So the, the, that's the first thing. The second thing is um, even if there is an increase in market share, even if that increase in market share does come from an acquisition of new customers and not just the closing doors of competitors, uh, right. I think there are other numbers to take a look at, like overall volume. Um, and if you take a look at spot trading volume, for example, derivatives trading, um, generally speaking, uh, they've had some really bad months over the last six months or so. Uh, I think the most recent month does show them slightly up in both those categories. Um, but the, the idea that there's a long-term trend of increased market share um, and that that somehow reflects positively on Binance or on any exchange, I think it's just an extreme oversimplification, uh, especially given the, the bigger context there. Yeah, so it's great to have you here to make those distinctions to point this out. I know these are things that you cover closely in your reporting. Talking of which, I know you can't comment on it, but what was the nature of this lawsuit? What was the reporting that resulted in it? And where are you with it right now? What can you say about it? Yeah, so um, I obviously can't talk about the lawsuit. Um, I think that it's been pretty well reported. Yes. Um, what I what I will say though is, uh, you know, I'm kind of go back here. You know, I I am not an investor in crypto. I'm a storyteller. I'm looking for great stories. I'm looking for great sources. Um, I always engage with every party that I can when I'm writing a story, whether or not it's positive or negative. Um, and in, in that particular story, um, we heavily engaged uh, with every party involved. Uh, we, we did deep reporting um, and was actually pleased to see uh, two, three years later, um, just earlier this week, the article was actually cited in a report, uh, I'm sorry, in a letter uh, from three U.S. senators. Uh, I think we have the images of that. We want to put that up on oh, screen. Oh, you do? Cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, if, if you take a look at the dates of the other articles that were cited in that letter, you take a look at the reporting that we did, um, and you kind of think about where, where the exchange was before we wrote that article, um, you can kind of see, I think, a little bit of a, a shift in tone in the industry and the reporting. Well, Michael, I'm just going to come right out and say it because I know you are uh, too humble to put this forward. But basically, uh, not to turn too fine a point on it, but this uh, 2020 report, uh, I think the so-called Tai Chi report uh, that you wrote uh, with, I think, some other folks over at uh, at Forbes, your shop, uh, you essentially were able to make some of these points uh, that uh, U.S. senators are getting around to now in 2023. 
uh, or late 2022, whenever that letter was issued. Uh, so you were you were literally years ahead of the recur uh, curve here in doing some of this research and analysis, trying to tease out some of these points. Yeah, well, I um, again, I do kind of like to let the report speak for itself. But what what I will say is, you know, we didn't set out with any agenda at all. Uh, when when we came across the documents that eventually ended up being cited in there, um, we sought, you know, an, as, as accurate an understanding of the bigger picture context that we could get across the board. Um, but are, are you I, able to share some of those findings with us now, or is that something that you prefer people go and look at the report on? Um, at a very high level, uh, I just say that there, there was some evidence um, that uh, Binance had at least considered creating an entity in the United States um, that I, I, I believe it was their exact wording. They called it the Tai Chi entity um, that would essentially distract uh, U.S. regulators while the main company did what it was going to do. Um, it's important to note, and I think we did make clear in the article, that, um, that all that we had for sure was that um, this plan had at least been considered and that what we now call Binance US um, that uh, is occasionally referred to as BAM trading um, looked an awful lot like it might have been this Tai Chi entity. Um, we, we did stop short of saying that for sure, but um, it, it, th there was a lot of similarities there. Um, but what I, what I think is really important to talk about, though, especially in light of the the mention of the report in the letters, the letter from the senators, is that this Binance, in a lot of ways, was the FTX of its time, in the sense that its reputation was kind of vaunted. Um, people like to talk about how SBF was largely portrayed as crypto's white knight. Um, how everything that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried did um, was golden and everything he touched turned to gold. Um, and I think before that report, uh, I, I think CZ and Binance had a very similar reputation. And it, it is worth noting that a lot of the innovation is genuine. You know, a lot of the things that they have come up with, a lot of the services that they've dedicated to helping ensure that People in developing nations that are often overlooked are actually getting paid attention to. Um, uh, a lot of the business model experimentation, whether it's in the gray area or not, you know, I'll leave that to the the, the lawyers. Um, but it's it's genuinely innovative, um, and so it, it shouldn't be overlooked that while a lot of the fallout around these collapses um, has impacted. You know, tens of thousands, millions of people. Um, a, a lot of the fallout around the harmed reputations of some of these exchanges, um, and the way that that's had impact on the industry, generally speaking, um, you know, shouldn't necessarily result in the baby being thrown out. Um, the, the, sorry, right. The, sorry, the, the mixed metaphor there: the baby being thrown out with the bathwater. Um, there, there's still a lot of good that is coming from this. A lot of uh, lessons learned. Um, uh, crypto is open source. While these centralized exchanges may or may not have a, a certain future, um, especially as regulations change, um, the underlying software, the technology is going to continue to evolve. Um, yes. it's just the, the, the way that people are using it is reacting to these stories, both at Binance, 
FTX and elsewhere around the world. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Yeah, two points. So that letter is dated March 1, 2023. I'm looking at it right now uh, from uh, the three senators here in the United States, including uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, I believe. Um, and the second point I wanted to make was if you're interested in this story and the continued reporting that's being done, a story that I'm sure you read uh, yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, Caitlin Ostroff and Patricia Kausman uh, writing uh, about uh, the continued uh, their continued work uh, researching uh, Binance US. Uh, we talked about it yesterday on the show. I don't want to extemporize on it. If you want to take a look at that, uh, go take a look at yesterday's show. It's on YouTube. It's on the Real Vision platform. Uh, but we detailed some of their findings uh, here yesterday on this show. I want to switch gears here a little bit to talk about something else that you uh, were alluding to, which is the continued bullishness in the space. Uh, and this is an interesting story. The Block reported this morning that Kathy Wood's ARK Invest has purchased more shares of Coinbase and Robinhood, according to an emailed trade notification. Uh, ARK sends out their traded notifications, I believe, on a daily basis. 47,568 shares of Coinbase have been added to ARK's flagship innovation ETF. Additionally, 8,031 shares of Coinbase were added to ARK's next generation internet ETF. ARK also added just over a million Robinhood shares to the same next generation internet ETF fund. Uh, given current pricing, ARK's Coinbase purchases totaled roughly $3.4 million, uh, while its Robinhood purchases totaled just a shade under 10 million. Kathy always seems bullish on these exponential trades. What do you make of ARK's investments? Uh, do you see it as a wider signal for the market at large? And, and how does it sort of stitch in with your thesis uh, about the broader potential of this space, Michael? Uh, fabulous question. Um, I kind of alluded to this earlier. So I wrote my first Bitcoin article in October, 2011. Um, went full-time in 2015. Um, loved covering the most cutting edge, um, experimental, risky technology that had not been properly due diligence, that had not been properly tested, um, but had immense promise. Um, over the years, um, I have started to seek out um, institutional adoption um, I have started to seek out companies that file uh, documents um, for their investors and, and, and the general public um, as a sort of index of where the, the rubber hits the road, so to speak. Um, we every year at Forbes publish the Blockchain 50, the list of what we call billion dollar companies that are taking any application of blockchain seriously, including cryptocurrency. It's sort of a bellwether of institutional and enterprise adoption. Uh, both Robinhood and Coinbase uh, are on that list, which just published uh, about six weeks ago. Um, and the, the reason why we put Robinhood and Coinbase on this, well, there's a lot of reasons, um, but they are um, striving aggressively for regulatory compliance. Um, they have incredibly high standards of due diligence um, uh, relative to a lot of other cryptocurrency companies out there. Robinhood obviously isn't just a cryptocurrency company. Um, their, their transparency is, is, is almost not comparable. Um, so I, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of Kathy's um, perspective or thesis here. Um, but to your point, she is a longtime supporter of, of, of these stocks. She kind of has gone in and out over the years, but I think generally uh, has been optimistic. And you know, yes. what we see 
is a, a movement to uh, regulatory compliance, a movement to transparency, um, a movement to playing by the rules. Um, there is certainly an equal opposite reaction away from that and the fallout of FTX and the, the domino effect of uh, bankruptcies surrounding that. We've seen um, a, a movement of people that are fed up with centralization. We've seen a movement of assets to decentralized exchanges. We've seen a movement of self-custody, people that are just tired of trying to, to monetize the micro movements and they're just holding on to it on their own, uh, their own devices. Um, but we've also seen another move towards compliance. Um, one way or another, people are fed up with seeing um, billions of dollars evaporate. Uh, and I think that places like Coinbase and Robinhood are seen as a, a, a safer alternative to that. Now, there's no guarantee publicly traded companies go bankrupt all the time. Yes, they um, do. But I think the, 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 the difference there is that the surprises around a publicly traded company's struggles or successes are much less. You're not going to go from being an industry's white knight. You're not going to go from being an industry's leader to bankrupt overnight in a publicly traded world as much as you do in the sort of shadows of these centralized crypto exchanges. Yeah, very well said. Michael, you're one of the few guests that I would throw this question out to. What else is on your mind? What else are you looking at? What else does MDC think people need to know? Um, there's there's a couple technological developments that I'm really interested in. Um, the, the first is uh, a number of breakthroughs in the non-fungible token space. Uh, please do not interpret what I'm saying as an endorsement of non-fungible tokens or uh, the application, generally speaking, especially as um, relates to sort of JPEGs on a blockchain. Um, but I do think the idea of being able to prove that a digital, um, that a unique digital asset has not been copied um, is going to have applications for generations to come. And yes. one of the biggest weaknesses of NFTs up until very, very recently has been that the actual asset itself, usually JPEG images, usually works of art, um, but occasionally deeds to properties uh, and, and other unique and rare assets has not actually been on the blockchain. It's been stored in third-party um, uh, databases, hopefully decentralized inter interplanetary file system, jumps right. out. Essentially, it's just a pointer. Uh, that says, hey, go look over there for the asset, right? IPFS uh, being one example of a decentralized yeah, solution yeah, where they've been stored, but mean, not, people, yeah. People that aren't in crypto were not as willing to be forgiving of that that weakness. People in crypto were like, yeah, okay, but like still, if anybody wanted me to prove that I owned this thing over here, I've got the hash here, and that's still cool, even if the actual asset doesn't move with the hash. Um, and that started to change uh, at the end of last year with the launch of Ordinals. Um, this is a, a Bitcoin project um, that was founded- a very, a very controversial Bitcoin project, we should very. point out, particularly to Bitcoiners who see this as just clogging block space. Bitcoiners don't like it. Uh, the creator I, who identifies as a Bitcoiner uh, was really fed up with kind of the, the workarounds and the hacks that NFT owners on uh, competing blockchains were being asked to do with these NFTs, and he came up with a better solution. 
uh, he, I, I think, gets a lot of credit for making an actual technological breakthrough, figuring out a way to embed the asset itself directly in the blockchain. No pointing, no third party. Very, very cool uh, development there. And, and, and again, like it, right now, it's more focused on um, images, but imagine the other kinds of digital objects that could be embedded in a public blockchain like Bitcoin. Now, to your point, it's been very controversial. Um, uh, the, the people that like it, like the pure innovation uh, for its own sake, uh, they may be into the fact that um, there's been unused block space in a lot of Bitcoin blocks. Something like this could help ensure that there is increased efficiency in the fact that every space in a block is is 100 percent used. Um, right. And there's even been talk about the end of the waiting process. I'm mean, sorry, uh, the end of an open line, right? The mempool where these transactions kind of wait to be closed may never be empty again. And right. By the way, for, for those who are not so technically inclined, the mempool is the place where uh, unclear transactions that haven't yet been added to the blockchain go and sit. That's where they're aggregated. That's where they're uh, then harvested and put onto the blockchain as uh, finished transactions. And since the launch of uh, these ordinals, uh, we've seen that, at least the last time I looked, that mempool had not been empty. Uh, there's been basically a queue to get a transaction settled. Now, if you want to see Bitcoin as just a monetary uh, asset, as a substitute for money, um, you might find that really, really frustrating. But again, this is open source technology. Problems are only there so long as a developer figures out a way to solve them. So I think yeah. that the net effect of something like this launching into a essentially permissionless world um, is going to be even more innovation to solve the problem if there is one. Uh, but I want to point out, I actually think that's part of a trend that is really getting overlooked. Um, in my reporting for a recent profile I did on Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian, uh, I was interviewing uh, the, the um, co-founder of one of his portfolio companies, Proof XYZ. Proof XYZ has actually accomplished a very, very similar thing on the Ethereum blockchain where they are now, they're not talking about assets that are, I'm sorry, NFTs that are um, on-chain, which is the common nomenclature. They're talking about NFTs that are in-chain. And they have accomplished using a, a totally different method, uh, a way of doing something very, very similar, which is to say removing the need to store uh, digital assets off on third-party exchange or third-party platforms that then point to them on the public blockchain. Right. And last but not least, uh, um, Monday, I had Juan Benet, the um, CEO and co-founder of Protocol Labs, the creator of the Filecoin cryptocurrency, and IPFS in our offices to interview him for uh, a soon-to-be-launched show that we're doing. Um, and he talked about the fact that Protocol Labs has also solved that problem. So we're looking at a world in the very near future where NFTs are not going to be this thing that are as easy to make fun of from the outside. Uh, that sort of like arrow. Like, I have no doubt that people will find a way to make fun of them. Uh, but your point yeah, being that will. this, by the way, this we could see this distinction between on-chain, off-chain, in-chain begin to start to get very blurry as you start to see things uh, like these distributed file systems, distributed cloud storage, IPFS, and other systems that are working on it. Uh, but I think the one thing that you and I definitely agree on here is this idea uh, that profile picks as a use case uh, for NFTs are the tip of the tip of the iceberg, the scratch on the scratch of the surface for true digital scarcity, the ability uh, to have uh, these decentralized protocols where you can have uh, essentially digital ownership of anything uh, distributed all over the world 
uh, globally, I guess, interplanetary, uh, to use the metaphor from IPFS. Uh, but again, and it's not just about profile picks. You can think about this from a securities perspective, uh, the capacity uh, to generate revenue streams in perpetuity. I mean, this, the use cases, the business cases for this are just fantastically interesting. Again, not an endorsement of any particular uh, protocol yeah. or token or project, but just the idea of if you're not excited about this technology, I, I just I don't know what's going to get you out of bed in the morning. I mean, I, I, I love um, pointing to the, the timeless uh, 99 Bitcoins uh, record of the deaths of Bitcoin. Um, it's happened nearly 500 times that media outlets have declared Bitcoin's death. Um, in, the, in the time that since people first declared Bitcoin's death, uh, there's been uh, dozens of upgrades, several major upgrades. Um, the stuff people are doing with the blockchain itself without actually doing upgrades never ceases to amaze. It's just short-sighted to call any open source software dead. Right. Um, as long as there's developers building, as long as there are problems to be solved and people that want to solve them, uh, you really have to focus at what's happening at a lower level, what's happening underneath the technology, the ideas that are being experimented with. And I think non-fungible yep. tokens are an idea that are not going away. And the movement of these assets from third-party distributed storage systems to on-chain it's just, I, I think eventually it will be considered a historic moment. By the way, I'll throw this out here uh, in uh, in acknowledgement of the great F. Scott Fitzgerald quote that the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in the mind and still retain the ability to function. I'll say this. Look, all this excitement, all this enthusiasm, none of this means that you can't buy a token the second this show ends at a local high and take an absolute bath on it. We have seen people lose, you know, buy at highs in the market because of the enthusiasm for the technology uh, and you wind up losing 90% of the value, uh, you know, in some number of days, weeks, or months. That happens too. And that's what makes this space so, I think, interesting and exciting. You have the price action on one hand, which is totally unpredictable. Uh, at least to me, I'm not smart enough to take the on-chain analytics or the price data and come up with a cogent thesis for where uh, prices are going uh, in the future. But simultaneously, you see just the clear underlying use cases for these technologies being so incredibly exciting. And, and that's just where we find ourselves. It's a wild space, right? Yeah, don't, don't ever confuse my enthusiasm for a good story uh, with investment advice. Uh, I feel <laughs> so unbelievably lucky that I get to write about uh, this brave new world of financial technology. Uh, rapidly becoming artistic technology, real estate technology, et cetera. Uh, but it's really just a, a, a great story for me. Um, and definitely do your own research before you make any movements. <laughs> yes, obviously, and very well said uh, and cogently stated. Michael, looks like we have a lot of questions pouring in from our viewers. I'd love to get some of these to you. Uh, first one comes to us from Gary Winters. This comes to us from the Real Vision website uh, or the Discord channel on the pro side. I'm not sure which. Uh, can Michael talk to Binance affiliate slash Voyager customer accounts take over court approval? I, a little bit of background context on Gary's question here. Uh, this is a case that's currently happening right now in bankruptcy court. Uh, Binance US is attempting to acquire some of the assets uh, of Voyager. Uh, that is obviously something that's a bit controversial. I believe uh, we had SEC uh, file a claim uh, or a, a motion stating uh, that they believe that uh, Binance US, again, I'm not an attorney, I'm just giving you the story as I recall it, uh, that Binance US uh, is operating as an unregistered uh, currency exchange or crypto exchange uh, or exchange of securities here in the United States. Again, according to an SEC motion, I want to make this assertion on my own behalf. This is what the SEC has asserted in that motion. Uh, and that's uh, currently 
uh, going through the court's bankruptcy court judge yesterday, uh, I believe in a, in a, in a written statement, uh, said in essence that uh, this case has to move forward. We don't have time uh, to kind of adjudicate all of these regulatory issues. Michael, do you have any thoughts on this? Is this something that you're following? Uh, a bit, yeah. Um, I, I do think it's important. There's a couple of things I want to focus on. First of all, um, regulators' job, uh, as I understand them, is to protect investors. Um, also, as I understand the Voyager deal, um, it would, uh, the Voyager deal with Binance, it would uh, help protect a lot of investors in a way that does not require government intervention, in a way that does not require regulatory intervention, um, and would, would help mitigate a whole lot of harm that has already happened. Um, and in some cases, maybe even undo some of that harm. So from, from that perspective alone, I, I'm sort of uh, happy to see that it appears the courts are going to let uh, the, the, the laws as they interpret them uh, go forward and be applied. Um, now, there's still no guarantee that the deal will go through. Um, and there could still be some regulatory obstacles that keep this from happening in the, the 11th hour. Right. Uh, but it, it, it does, it, it's nice to see at least the chance for something like this happening. Um, there's very few people that I've heard of on the Voyager side of things, uh, on the Binance side of things that don't want to see this happen. It kind of, it kind of feels like protection for protection's sake um, and that maybe it would be best to just kind of let something like this play out. Now there's some, certainly some bigger pictures at play um, like what is Binance doing with the money? Um, what is Binance letting happen on, is ex on its exchange? Um, what sort of certainty do regulators have about what's happening on those exchanges? Who is doing them and for what reasons? So there, there are other um, motives at stake here bigger than just making Voyager whole and making Binance happy. Um, but I think it'll be good to see at least that deal get to make a couple more steps forward and maybe us learn a little bit more about some of those other bigger questions before the regulator kind of just comes in and kills it out of the gate. Hey, everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Mike, I got one follow-up for you on this question. Yeah. I've got one more question that I want to do. Uh, so, you know, this is my understanding of the way this works. It's Obviously, it's very complicated and it's very challenging to talk about. Uh, but basically what you have is you have uh, the U.S. Congress, which writes the federal uh, the U.S. code. Uh, they write the laws here in the United States. Uh, then you have regulators who essentially act on behalf of the government in an independent fashion, independent of the current administration, meaning the executive branch, although they are appointed, uh, the chair of the SEC, for example, is appointed by the president. <clears throat> they take action when they feel that federal law has been violated. They then sue in federal court uh, to have the US court system, the federal court system, adjudicate these claims. And now we have this side case uh, in a bankruptcy court in the United States, which has bearing on this regulatory process. I mean, what this really all comes down to, Michael, tell me if I'm wrong here. We have 90-year-old securities laws in this country. None of this is anticipated to have digital assets be at the center of these cases. And everybody is struggling to figure that out because ultimately it's Congress that needs to take action here to figure out how the law should be written. Uh Great points. Very well said. I love uh, perhaps the intentional demonstration of the complexity uh, and, as some people might see it, the unnecessary complexity. Um, I do think it's really important here. You know, we're talking about the difference between something that might be deemed illegal 
and something that might be deemed not compliant with regulations. And those are two very different things. Uh, somebody can get in trouble with a regulator without actually breaking any law. Somebody can actually Correct. break the law without getting in any trouble with the regulator. In, in fact, these regulators, SEC, for example, only file civil actions. They then refer to DOJ, Department of Justice, if there is a criminal action uh, that then uh, has to be followed up on. Boy, we could go down the rabbit hole on this. So when, you have, when you have a, 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 a judge kind of weigh in on something like this, what they're really just saying is that from a legal perspective, you know, like, let's let's let this play out. Right. That doesn't. That still doesn't mean that there there might be, like I said, something at the eleventh hour that comes in and changes things. But what I want to really focus in on is that ninety-year-old law that you're talking about there, yeah. because um, even in the fallout around the FTX uh, domino effect and the billions of dollars that erased, the trillions of dollars uh, in market value that have disappeared, um, we've seen a tightening of regulations around the world, but almost always in the form of increased clarity and new regulations. Europe is actually uh, just about a year away from enacting its own new crypto regulation called MICA, which we yep. shouldn't get into any details on, um, that I, I know from firsthand experience from reporting that you will be see, com see coming out in the coming days uh, that banks in Europe are doing really cool stuff with crypto because of the increased clarity and the new regulations. Now, um, what's happening in the United States, uh, you know, whether I'm, I don't want to talk about if the regulators have are being earnest when they talk about wanting to protect their um, their, their their constituents' uh, best interests, making sure they're not being taken advantage of. All of that, whatever, we'll deal with that later. They are applying 90-year-old regulation. Yeah, the, principally the, okay. 19, the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, almost exactly 90 years old. Uh, and I love that you're teasing new reporting coming out on Mika, the Markets and Crypto uh, Assets Act that's currently happening in Europe. Mike, I got one crazy. more. One last thing. I'm so sorry. As, as the United States is closing up shop and, and, and putting the fear of God into its financial institutions, there's some amazing stuff happening in Europe. And uh, it's... If as a storyteller, that's where I'm going to be paying attention. We'll leave the investors to decide what they do with their money. And by the way, this has real implications for global competitiveness here in yeah. the United States. It would really be a shame if we saw uh, all the places that Silicon Valley has historically led the world uh, moving offshore somewhere else. I got to ask this question, which is in some ways tied to precisely this point. Uh, this comes to us from YouTube from Wrong Again. What is Michael's opinion regarding the multiple denials by the SEC of a BTC ETF, Bitcoin ETF? Why are futures okay, but not spot? Fair or capricious action by SEC? A little bit of a leading question for you, but it's a good one. Um, I got to think about that. It's incredibly frustrating um, as a storyteller that we don't have a Bitcoin ETF in the United States. Um, I think that getting that sort of formal recognition, getting that sort of uh, blessing on what is essentially a new asset for the largest economy in the world um, would spawn so much innovation. Um, not all innovation um, is good for a nation's interest. Not all innovation is bad for a nation's interest. I completely understand some of the concerns 
around uh, the United States giving too much leeway to this technology that some people still find very scary. Let's not forget the fact that even as the United States is uh, you know, occasionally being painted as old fashioned and stodgy, uh, China has completely killed it, um, has completely right. ended it. You know, it's not that they're not giving blessings of new innovative stuff, they've completely stopped any innovation using distributed ledger technology that cannot be shut off by the Chinese government. Hey, and on the flip side, you and I are both old enough to remember what happened in Iceland during the global financial crisis. Uh, this idea that innovation is always good. You saw this massively hypertrophied uh, financial services system cause chaos throughout the country during the collapse. But, you know, to your point, uh, obviously this is a balancing act here and it's one that uh, it's one that we, I think, are both reasonable to say like to see happen onshore in the U.S. rather than somewhere else in the there world. There are uh, so many Bitcoin ETFs out there. In developed nations, in nations that the United States government and regulators probably thinks of as peers, um, the claim that there's right. not enough information out there, the claim that there's not enough certainty out there is just dis disingenuous to me. Now, what, what might be the real motives, I don't want to speculate on, uh, but I do think that, that uh, the industry has moved past uh, a regulator being able to claim there's not enough data. But by the way, for people who are just following this casually, who are saying, of course, they're Bitcoin ETFs in the United States. These are Bitcoin futures ETFs. That was the spirit of the question rather than Bitcoin spot ETFs. Uh, arguably, uh, a far less efficient way of doing this is through futures for a whole series of very technical reasons that we don't have time to get into here. Uh, Michael, fa fantastic, man. I love having you on the show, dude. You, you got to come on and do this with us more often. Ash, it was a real pleasure. It was, like I said, it's fun to look at you face to face again after so much time sitting shoulder to shoulder. You know, the last time I ran into you, I literally stumbled into an outdoor book party, I think in the East Village that you were at right after the COVID epidemic. I think that was the last time I saw you in person. Yeah, um, we can talk about my literary endeavors in another day. <laughs> we'll talk about them on the next show. Hey, listen, Michael, before you go, uh, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers with. We covered a tremendous amount of material here. Um, yeah, for me, key takeaway is uh, I, my, my constant uh, drumbeat that I'm just telling everybody, which is that open source is a living, a living thing. Um, the technology on which all of these assets is built um, evolves. It changes. Uh, it, it's the, the, the people behind it are reacting to the same problems that you're seeing in headlines around the world, in reports around the world. Uh, and, and if the resources of a group of developers behind an open resource project determine that a problem is worth solving, it will be solved. Yep. And, and so while, while it's, you know, I, please don't conflate that with fear of missing out. Please don't conflate that with like, buy because the problems are all solvable. But just like be patient with this technology. Um, I, I, I'm actually glad to hear uh, reporters and, and, and people speaking to the press have stopped saying it's early days. Um, it's not early days, guys. Uh, we're, we're coming up on 15 years of Bitcoin. And sure, it might be early days considering the Internet took 50 years to get on, right. on two legs. But like it's a mature space. The, 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 the fact is that a thousand years from now, it will still be maturing because the technology is moving as fast as the developers can build solutions. Yeah, you know, Dan Moorhead, uh, 
uh, often points out over Pantera Capital, says it took us 25 years just to get to a web browser uh, in the internet, going back to the uh, ARPANET days uh, of the late 1960s before we even got to a browser. Boy, Michael, you couldn't have summed that up better. I mean, that's just such an elegant statement about the real driver for what's happening in the space, which is this open source development effort that we see out there. Uh, so much enthusiasm, obviously, in the open source community for this technology. I think it's fantastic. A great way to close out the show. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope you can come back again and do this soon. This was so much fun. Thank you for the opportunity, Ash. It was really good to see you. Well, we're going to have to do this again soon. Michael Del Castillo, thanks once again for joining us. That's it for today. Leah Wald and Josh Ozekowitz from Valkyrie will be joining us tomorrow. Hey, make sure you check out realvision.com as well. We have an important two-part series called How to Unfuck Your Future. It features some of the most visionary thinkers and investors we know. As we mentioned previously, this week we'll be exploring all the ways in which we're all effed, featuring Rao Powell, Dario Perkins, Frederick Niebrand, Peter Zihan, and Alex Gurevich. In week two, we thankfully move on to the solutions. We'll leave you with a trailer. See you again tomorrow at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London time, live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great afternoon, everybody. If we want to change the outcomes for this really screwed up world, where our wages don't go up, where we're being replaced by technology, where governments are massively in debt and we foot the bill via taxes, where we see debasement of assets so we can't afford as many assets as we like. So the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. If we don't like to see the rise of populism based on this broken society because the promises of the future have been broken, let's make our promises to our future selves come right. And that's by unfucking your future. Some of this is going to really f your future in 20 or 30 years time, but we've got time to figure that out because it's unstoppable. Mm -hmm.